Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Welcome and uh, welcome online as well. And uh, it's been great to be with your staff and elders and deacons all, all weekend. I'm glad that you're here. You're in this great series uh, for this whole month. It's great for kind of January to reset and say, what kind of church are we? We are we are what? And so I get to have this topic about we are people of the Great Commission. And I think you all should be proud of the fact that this church isn't just about itself, but it's about really seeing God's mission advance on earth. And so uh, you need to know that you're part of some great organizations, a couple of great global partners, uh, Central India Christian Mission and Pioneer Bible Translators, both of which are, are two of the best organizations that I know. So for you all to be partnering with them is pretty significant in what you're doing, accomplishing great uh, God's commission around the world. Even locally, you're part of some partners here as well in the region, a couple of great camps with Indian Lake and Beachmont and then uh, True Life Counseling. And so you're making a difference here in the region as well. But you may not know if you've been uh, around here even for some period of time that you're church has also been very invested in seeing some new churches get started. And Waypoint, one of the things that Waypoint does every year is we start uh, two, two or three new churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. Some of those we've even been in partnership with uh, this church. And so your church in the last 15 years has partnered to help start Community Christian in White Marsh and uh, United Christian over in Owings Mills and the Foundry in the city here and a revolution in Annapolis. And, uh, and I'm trying to think of at least one other um, uh, encounter Christian church in Washington D.C. and we've been a part of those some of those as well. And so it's great to see that you all are invested, making a, a great commission impact not just in this church, but seeing God's kingdom expand even through new churches. And so I want to talk about that a little bit today about church planting because I'm a former church planter. My wife and I have helped to plant two churches in the Waypoint region as well as a couple of churches overseas, one in France and one in Ukraine. And so I get really geeked about church planting to talk about that. And I want to talk to you about why in the world would churches get excited about starting new churches? Uh, because as a person that's in this, basically my, my whole career, I now get to teach a lot about, about church planting, whether it's at conventions or conferences or in our seminaries. Uh, and, uh, and I talk about why we should be planting more churches, the urgency for that. And I think when I start talking about most people whether they say it out loud or not, have a question in the back of their mind that I think is fairly legitimate. And that is, new churches, don't we have enough churches already? You know, in America, there are more than 350,000 churches. Did you know that? 350,000 churches. That's like on average more than 7,000 per state, right? If you do the math. It's like, don't we have enough churches already? And I think that's a pretty fair question to ask is why should we start new churches uh, when we have so many already? And so um, I'd like to share with you, well, I would love to share with you a whole bunch of compelling statistics about why church planting should be so important. And I don't know if any of you are math lovers out there. Uh, I used to be a high school math teacher before I became a pastor. And so I love math. And so I used to teach trigonometry and pre-calculus. Do we have any math lovers out there? A cup, usually there's a couple and they raise their hands about like this. It's okay, be loud and proud. It's all right. Uh, there are support groups for people like us. And uh, so I love math. And so I could talk about all day long about the, the compelling statistics there are for why we should be so heavily invested in seeing more and more churches started as people of the Great Commission. But I'm not gonna do that because I think most people 
think that church should be a math-free zone, right? It's like of all places in the world, Sunday morning should be free of all math. So let me only share one statistic with you that I think kind of gives a hint about how compelling church planting should be, and then we'll stop uh, for those of you who don't want to hear any more about uh, church planting. And so here's my one statistic for you. If this generation follows suit, uh, like the last two or three generations, then 30 years from now, in the year 2052, that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? 2052, 30 years from now, half of all people attending a church in America are gonna be in a church that's less than 30 years old. Does that make any sense? 30 years from now, if this generation is like the last two or three generations, half people attending a church are gonna be in a church that's less than 30 years old. Maybe you can't think forward like that, so here's a better way to put it maybe. Today in America, January 2022, I'm still getting used to saying 2022, but today in America, half the people in America are attending a church that's more than 30 years old, and half of them are in a church that's less than 30 years old. The last two or three generations, the 30-year mark roughly has been the median uh, mark for church attendance as far as the age of the church. And so here's what this means. 30 years from now, if this generation follows suit like the last two or three, half the people attending a church in America are going to be attending a church that we have not yet started. Think about that for a minute. If this generation goes like the last two or three, if we don't keep planting churches, the churches that we start 30 years from now, that's going to be where half the people are going to go to church. And so if we don't keep starting churches like this church has been involved in for the last 15 years or more, we're going to miss a whole generation for Christ and we'll cripple the church for generations to come. So that's my one statistic. Some some of you love that. Some of you like, let's get to the Bible, please. No more math. And so I think that's a good statistic. But uh, let's. But rather than talking about church planting statistically, let's talk about it biblically for a minute. I want to talk about a compelling reason that I think the Bible makes for planting new churches. But believe it or not, it's not going to be from the Great Commission initially, uh, even though any preacher, that's where he should start. And actually, I don't even want to look at a passage of Scripture from the New Testament. I want to look at a passage of Scripture that precedes the Great Commission in the Old Testament. And of all places in the Bible, I want to go actually to the first page of Scripture to the account of creation as to make a compelling case about why we should be planting more churches. But if you're paying attention at the end of this, there's going to be a very significant, important application for every person in this room, for you, everyone that's watching online. So pay attention. We'll get to that. But let's go to Genesis chapter 1. But before we do that, there's an important um, principle that we have to understand that comes from the study of hermeneutics. And hermeneutics... I don't know if you know that word, it's a churchy word, and hermeneutics is actually a course that you're going to take when you go to seminary. Hermeneutics is the study, the science and study of properly interpreting scripture so that you can teach it to other people. That there's ground rules about the way you're supposed to handle scripture and the Bible languages in such a way that you teach it properly. And uh, so you would hope that anybody that's on the stage did fairly well in hermeneutics when they were in Bible college or seminary. And you've probably heard preachers online or on TV, and they say something really wonky from Scripture, and you're like, where did they come up with that? Well, they probably got a D-plus in hermeneutics is what, 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 what the way that works. And so you would, you would need to do really well in hermeneutics so that you properly interpret and teach Scripture. And of all the lessons that you learn in this course in hermeneutics, one of them is this lesson having to do with emphasis, about emphasis, that 
the Bible was written primarily in two languages. There's actually a third one a little bit, but mostly in the Old Testament, the Bible was written in Hebrew. And in the New Testament, it was primarily written in Greek. And interestingly enough, both of those Bible languages have almost no punctuation. Punctuation is practically absent in the Bible languages. And so if you're writing, you know, if you were one of the ones tasked with writing God's redemptive plan for mankind and you and your friends and family, how would you emphasize anything if you can't use an exclamation point or any other punctuation or you can't go control U and underline something or control B and make it bold? How do you emphasize anything without punctuation? Well, what you learn in hermeneutics is that in the Bible languages, in in the Bible, emphasis is almost always accomplished through the use of strategic repetition. That words or phrases repeated one after another uh, often give the hearer or the reader a clue that something very important is about to uh, be said, and so you got to pay attention. And we would understand what this looks like even in modern times, not just back in the old Bible languages, uh, when, when something is repeated that you got to pay attention. For example, parents, uh, you're going to spring break this spring here in a couple of months down to Florida, go to Disney, and you get all the kids packed up in the car and you head down. How long does it take as you're driving down 95 before over the back seat, one of the kids says, Daddy, I really got to go. How long is it? An hour, maybe, if you're lucky. And being any warm-blooded American dad, do you stop immediately? No way, right? You're going to stretch this out, hoping you can make it another half hour, an hour before you really have to stop. But then about 20 minutes later, you hear the same little voice from over the back seat that says, Daddy, I really, really got to go. And we would all understand by the use of that strategic repetition that the next statement is going to be in liquid form, right? Uh, that, uh, that, that something really important is going to happen, so we need to pay attention. And so uh, we see this in Scripture, all throughout Scripture, that the use of strategic repetition clues us off to the fact that something really important is about to be said. For example, in the New Testament, uh, there's this odd phrase or word that Jesus would use uh, as he was speaking that just is not the way we would speak in English today. Um, Actually, more than 60 times in Scripture, we see Jesus saying, verily, verily, I say to you, or in modern languages, truly, truly, I say to you. And we just don't go around saying that before we say something important to our spouse or to our kids. Kids, verily, verily, you know, we would never say that. And so, but but that was the way that Jesus would clue off someone that the next thing he was going to say might be really important, so they need to pay attention. The very first example that we see of that in Scripture is in John chapter 3, where uh, Jesus is meeting at night with this dude named Nicodemus. And in the middle of their conversation in John chapter 3, Jesus tells him, truly, truly, or verily, verily, I say to you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And that's the first time that idea of being a born again Christian uh, is ever stated, that Jesus coined the phrase to be a born again Christian. And that's kind of important, isn't it? That to get to heaven, you got to be born again. And so Jesus is kind of figuratively grabbing Nicodemus by the shoulders and saying, pay attention, I'm going to tell you something really important. And so he uses this phrase that's then repeated more than 60 times in Jesus' teaching. And there's all kind of other ways this happens in Scripture as well. I don't know if you remember Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. Or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And throughout Scripture, we see that anytime these words or phrases are repeated, that we've got to pay attention. 
Well, it's with this hermeneutical principle in mind that I want to go all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and look at the account of creation and see if there isn't a word or a phrase that's repeated. Interestingly, not once or twice or three times, but seven times in the space of just 10 verses, there's an odd word or phrase repeated that I think we need to pay attention to because God must really be trying to tell us something if he's going to repeat it that many times. And so we've got a picture of the the days of creation uh, here, the six days of creation. And I want to talk specifically about days three, five, and six. Because days three, five, and six are the days that uh, living things were created. Days one, two, and four are more inanimate objects like the atmosphere and the sun and the moon and the sky and all that kind of thing. But days three, five, and six were the days that living things were created. And so I want to take a look at that account and see if we can't find a repeated word or phrase that we need to pay attention to. Before we do that, however, just as an aside, uh, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, was fortunate to grow up in church and so growing up in Sunday school or vacation Bible school, I learned when you studied the account of creation that at the end of every day that God created something, he would take a step back and kind of survey everything he had created for the day and he would say to himself, behold, that is good. And that word good is a great Hebrew word. It's tov, T-O-V. That's good. It's right. It's perfect. It's exactly what I wanted. And so I learned growing up that at the end of every single day of creation, God took a step back and said, behold, that's good. That is not the case. If you go and read Genesis chapter one, you'll notice that that, 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 that does not appear at the end of every day. Actually, it's the end of, the, the end of day two, God does not say that. And so uh, if, if, my bore, if my sermon gets boring here in a minute, go back and read Genesis chapter one. I give you permission. And uh, you'll notice in day two. And so if you understand the sequencing of this, of course, the first day of the week is Sunday, day two is Monday, day three, Tuesday, and so on. Do you know what this means theologically? God hates Mondays too. Uh, that, that's what it means. It's like he doesn't say it was good after Monday. And so when you get up and need to go to work tomorrow, and you're like, I don't want to go to work. God says, I know. And so, uh, so go ahead and read it. It's not in there. But let's take a look at, at this account of creation at the end of days three, five, and six and see if you can discover this, uh, this repeated word or phrase that we should be paying attention to. And uh, so we're going to look, first of all, at Genesis 1, chapter, uh, or verse 11, which is day three. The Bible records this. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Do you see a word or phrase repeated there a couple of times? If we go on, I think you'll start picking up which one it is. We can go to day five now, verse 21 in Genesis chapter one. Verse 21 records, so God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and moves about in it according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. You see what it is now? If not, you'll get it by this last one. Day six, down in verse 25, the Bible records, so God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. All right, by now you can see this odd phrase. It's getting repeated so many times. It's kind of awkward, isn't it? 
It's like, okay, God, I get it. There's this word according to their kind or after their kind. And so what in the world is God trying to tell us through this passage? Uh, After their kind. And so this word, this phrase, after their kind, in English is actually a phrase, but in the original Hebrew language, it's just one word. It's this word lamino. It's the lamino, after their kind. And what it means is by the strategic design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. And when I first heard this word lamino, I thought to myself, it sounds like the French version of Gilligan's Island. You know what I mean? The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the courage of the fearless crew, lamino would be lost. If you're over 50 in the room, you know exactly what I mean. If you're under 50, you have no idea. All right, but I will never forget this word, lamino, because of that. By the creative design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. That's repeated seven times in 10 verses so much that we got to figure out what in the world is the lesson that God's trying to teach us by this repetition. And so it's living things reproduce themselves. And we think to ourselves, that's pretty interesting. Until you think about it for about 10 seconds, and then you're like, well, no, duh. That's the way life's always been, right? That things reproduce themselves. Well, can you imagine what life would be like if this providential restriction on creation had not been put into play by God? If things didn't have to reproduce themselves? Wouldn't that be fascinating? For example, your family has a pet dog and she gets pregnant. And so you can tell it's about time for her to give birth. And so you create some kind of comfortable place out on the back deck uh, one night and you go to bed, and the next morning you get up and look out on the back deck, and sure enough, your dog has given birth to a a big litter of chickens. You know, it's like, that's not going to happen. That would be awesome if it would happen, but it's not going to happen, is it? Why? Lamento, that's right. Why, right? Because by the creative design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. Uh, Or uh, your wife is ready to give birth and goes into the delivery room and after several difficult hours of labor, out pops a bouncing baby lizard. It's like, well, that's not going to happen, is it? And uh, all the women in the room are saying, oh, that's horrible. The guys in the room are like, you know, I happen to be present at the birth of my children. And I think most guys in the room would have to admit that the first couple of hours, they kind of look like lizards, right? But they're not lizards, are they? They're human, right? Otherwise, that's like a sci-fi movie, right? But uh, they're, they're not lizards. They're human. Why? Lamino, right? Because by the creative design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. And so God is trying to drive home this message to us in the account of creation. So what's my point? Some of you are really starting to wonder, what in the world is he trying to get at? Here's my point. The church is a living thing, isn't it? The church, who said no? The church is a living thing. The the Bible teaches that. That Over and over again throughout scripture, the Bible ascribes to the church anthropomorphic qualities, human-like qualities. Actually, the two most common words that describe the church happen to, in English, coincidentally, start with the letter B. You know what those two words are that the church is described as the body of Christ or the bride of Christ? The church is a living thing. The Bible often, uh, in many different ways, says that a church can be born, it can die, it can grieve, it can lose its first love, it can repent, it can be rich or poor. The church can persevere 
the church is a living thing. So here's the question. If the church is a living thing, is Lamino in play for the church? Well, of course it is. By the creative design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. So that's what I love about Fork Church here is that this church helps other churches get started because that's what every church should be about, that churches make churches. That's Lamino in action, isn't it? And so I'm, I'm glad for that. Now, here I want to switch to a personal application for everybody in this room. This is where I'm going to go from preaching to meddling. All right, you ready for this? All right. I don't think churches should make disciples. I think disciples should make disciples. Churches should make churches and disciples should make disciples. Does that make any sense? And I think I got that all wrong when I was growing up in the church. I thought it was my job to invite my friend to church, have him occupy a chair in in the room for an hour and I had done my job because it was the church's job to make disciples. But that's not the way it works. I think churches should make churches and disciples should make disciples. And so it should be no surprise to us when we do go to that passage in Matthew chapter 28 that's called the Great Commission. We are people of the Great Commission. It should be no surprise to us on how that reads. Maybe you're, you're not familiar with that passage, Matthew chapter 28. The Bible records for us uh, how that goes. Jesus said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Just before Jesus ascends up into heaven, he gathers his followers around him and he gives them their mission. And we are on co-mission with God. This is, our co- this is the great commission. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus, t- did Jesus tell the church to make disciples here? No, the church wasn't even in existence yet. Do you ever know exactly to whom Jesus was speaking here? Well, we know exactly to whom Jesus was speaking because we can just back up two verses, not to verse 18, but to verse 16 and figure out who Jesus was speaking to here. So if we look at verse 16, we'll notice that Jesus, the Bible records, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And so Jesus then, just two verses later, tells his disciples to go and make disciples, right? Jesus said, disciples, make disciples. That's Lamino, isn't it? And this really should be no surprise to us because did you know that Jesus was present at creation? Jesus was present in Acts chapter one. Actually, the the apostle Paul teaches us in the book of Colossians that not only was Jesus present at creation, but he says all things were created by him, Jesus, and for him and through him all things hold together. Jesus invented Lamino in the first place. And Jesus says disciples make disciples. Churches make churches. Disciples make disciples. And so the question is here today, this is the convicting question, is uh, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ in this room or watching online, does Lamino apply to you? Of course it does. That by the creator design of God, every living thing reproduces itself after its kind. And so disciples should make disciples. So here's a real quick litmus test to decide whether Lamino applies to you. If you're in this room today or watching online and 
you're a follower of Jesus, and you're breathing. It applies to you, right? Because every living thing reproduces after its kind. If you're not breathing, you're exempt, right? And so, uh, so disciples make, all living disciples should be making other disciples. And so my question would be, who is that for you? And if you've ever heard preachers get up on stage like this and talk about you should be sharing your faith or making disciples, you're often wondering, what's that look like? And so kind of, I want to kind of wrap up today by talking about what that looks like in real life. And to do that, I want to give you a physical reminder, a memory tool on what Lamino looks like for you. So my wife uh, was a children's minister for 25 years, taught kids great, and she always tried to use physical hand exercises of some kind as a memory tool. And so if, you're, if you would join me today, what I'd like you to do is take your two hands out like this, like you're in junior church, put them together just like this, and rub them together like this. This is a picture of Lamino. This is a picture of disciples making disciples. What this is a picture of right now is one person rubbing shoulders with another intentionally, strategically, regularly in such a way that your faith is passed along to the other person. Does that make sense? This is as simple as you can get. This is what Lamino looks like in real life. That you're a disciple of Jesus and you've got someone in your life. It could be a neighbor across the street. Uh, it could be a coworker that you interact with every, day, every week, Monday through Friday. It could be a friend that you've had for a long time or someone that, a friend that you've got that's new in your life. It could be a family member, a child, brother, sister, cousin, grandchild, no matter, that you are intentionally, strategically, regularly rubbing shoulders with them in such a way that they get to see what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus and, and it's passed along to them. That's what Lamento looks like. And so they see you, for example, they see what, as a married person, what it looks like to try and have a marriage that honors God, even though you are two very imperfect people. And you got to figure out how to live together in spite of all your imperfections. And so they see you doing that and you tell them verbally, man, I'm struggling with this, but because we love God, we're working it out. And they get to see what it looks like to live a life of faith in a marriage and your faith is passed along to them. Or at work, they see you trying to have ethics and values that are honest and true. And you tell them, this is why I make these decisions. And they see what it looks like for a Christ follower, what they look like when they're a disciple. And your faith is passed along to them as you intentionally do that. Or a family member or a friend sees the way that you order your finances in such a way that, that honors God and has kingdom values. And you tell them why you make the decisions that you do financially. And by doing that, you rub shoulders with them in such a way that they get to see what it looks like for a person to be a person of faith and a disciple starts making another disciple. Or parents, you've got kids and you make decisions about the way that you're raising your kids to know and love Jesus. And oftentimes the decisions you make seem countercultural to your friends or even some of your family members. And you tell them why you're making those decisions. And as you explain that to them, lamino happens. That they, a disciple starts making other disciples as they see what it looks like for a person of faith to live out their life every day. Or you've got other people in your life that you explain how in the world you're trying to make this 2,000-year-old book that's difficult to read 
be relevant in the way that you live out your life every day. And as you explain that to them, that in the Bible, I'm trying to do this, or the Bible teaches that, and so I'm trying to live that way, lamino happens. That you rub shoulders with the person strategically, intentionally, simply, so they see what it looks like, and a disciple starts making another disciple. So who is it in your life? It's got to be somebody. Living disciples make other disciples. And so, and so I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would be convicting you right now that you would be envisioning who that is in your life. There's got to be somebody, right? Living things reproduce themselves. Who is it for you? And let me pause for a minute and say, whether you're in this room today or following online, I get to interact with a different church practically every week. And all the churches that I interact with, people, the churches are struggling to figure out how people are a little hesitant to get fully re-engaged back in the life of the church with, with uh, being here physically and present or volunteering in areas of ministry like in the children's ministry or youth ministry or first impressions, that churches are struggling with that or, or restarting all their small group ministry and that's not going like it used to be. And so I want to I challenge you to get re-engaged in those things, not just because it's the, kind of what churches do, it's because it's all about this right here. It's about being uh, strategically and intentionally rubbing shoulders with other, with other believers in such a way that one of two things happen. Either by doing that, your faith gets passed along to them and they become better, stronger disciples because of the example you're giving them, or you're involved with serving alongside someone here at church or in a small group during the week in such a way that they're an example to you and your faith grows but as you watch them go through all those struggles of what it looks like to, to, to be a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Lamino is in play as you rub shoulders with other believers here at this church. So get re-engaged. Now, there might be a few people in this room or watching online that aren't even yet a follower of Jesus Christ. You would not call yourself a disciple. So I want to let you know that there are great people in this church that would love to assertively, intentionally, lovingly walk alongside you and kind of show you the ropes, to rub shoulders with you and show you this is what it looks like to be a disciple in 2022 in Fork, Maryland. We can show you what that looks like and walk alongside you weekly, monthly, being part of this church family. So who is it for you? In a minute, I'm gonna pray. And while I'm praying, I'd like you to be rubbing your hands together like this as the Holy Spirit is telling you, who's that other person? And even as a memory tool, this week, as you're driving to work and you're at a stop sign, maybe you'd rub your hands together just like this and think about who is it in my life that I'm passing my faith along to today at work. Or uh, this week as you're, as you're working and you've got a moment at, at lunchtime that you'd rub your hands together and think, when I get home, who is it in my life that I'm gonna be showing what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus? But I'm gonna pray right now that the Holy Spirit would be convicting you about that one person that you're making a disciple of intentionally, strategically, creatively. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so thankful for this church that for years and years has been reproducing itself through other churches here in the region because that's exactly what you designed the church, designed the church to be. But right now, as we are concluding this message, we're praying that your Holy Spirit would be actually 
showing us the person in our life that we need to be reproducing our faith in, that as a disciple, I'm making one more disciple. And it might be a friend or a neighbor or a family member or a coworker, but there's somebody that I am strategically, intentionally, assertively telling them, this is how it works for me, so that they get to see a picture of what that looks like in real life. Would you give us the courage to live out that life of faith? Father, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus, who came to earth and lived among us. He rubbed shoulders with us to show us what that life looks like. And we want to follow his example. And we pray in his name. Amen.